Well, once again, thank you for being here. We're, this morning we start chapter 3 of Colossians. Um, I'm thankful to Linda Reed who helped me to remember where in the world are we. You know, I haven't, as you know, been dating these. I've just been putting lesson number one, lesson number two, lesson number three. Because sometimes when we've dated things, we didn't do it on that date, then the date throws us off and why didn't, what happened. So I just decided not to do that. And so it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in here. And if you don't mind my saying this, I am ahead of myself in the classes. I already have notes for the next couple of three classes. You know, so I've been doing this and involved in all of this, you know, Colossians and chapter three and and then all of a sudden, I look, wait a minute, did I teach this or did I just have these notes? <laughs> I just could not remember. I, I could not get it straight in my mind because I remember there were elements that I taught, but I'm not sure whether I emphasize that. It's just too much for me. So this morning we're starting chapter 3, thanks to uh, Linda. The reason I said it that way is this. If this morning we should not have started chapter 3, it's Linda Reed's fault. So that's, you see, you thought that I was going somewhere good on this. I am. I'm dodging a bullet. <laughs> I'm throwing Linda in front of me. So if you say, hey, we didn't finish chapter two, it's Reed's fault. Talk to her. She's the reason for all of this. <laughs> so thank you for being here. Once again, let me emphasize this, and I cannot, I cannot but do it regularly. Thank you for being committed to the Word of God. I am increasingly concerned over the maybe not lack of word in the church, in this church, any church. And I think that this church is probably a whole lot better than many others. But that isn't to say that I am satisfied in myself or in the church. Again, let us be a people, and I would think and hope that this audience is that way, but also to be encouraging others, to be a people who are inundated, flooded with the Word of God. And it is amazing to me, as I you know, want to read this passage and going through, you know, I, I, I go through books of the Bible, I don't jump around in passages. You know, read through a whole book as God gives you that to read and go through the next one, whatever that next one would be, whether it's in a row or however. But it is amazing to me how in the morning I'll read a particular passage wherever it is that I am. And then during the day, something from that passage is needed for a particular situation in my own life or the life of someone else. I can't tell you how many times in teaching I don't know what I'm going to be needing for the next class until I get into that material, other than in a very general way. And yet the Lord will, in a passage or whatever, I'll be reading it, hey, this is fine, whatever, and then get into the Colossians material and say, wait, that's exactly what I needed to have for this class. You see, God is the teacher. The Holy Spirit, amen, is the teacher. And so let us be letting him fill us with his word. So this morning we continue in Colossians as 
We're in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Let's read those together. Colossians 3, 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on the things that are on the earth. Because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also, I'm sorry, then you will also appear with him in glory. Father, as you are always doing, Father, as one man says, this is vintage Yahweh. Father, teach us your word. Fill us. Mature us. Minister to us. Father, this is the purpose of Jesus coming into the world. That we might become your image-bearing children forever. Imaging you in the most critical area of all. In our communion, in our fellowship with one another. That is reflective of who you are in yourself. Father, everything flowing from that and everything is a consequence of that and everything that speaks of that fellowship. So, Father, increase in us this personal knowledge of and experience of who you are, that we may know you. And knowing you by your Spirit, through your Word, as we walk in obedience and fellowship with one another, Father, we are being conformed to the image of your dear Son. Father, thank you for this. Make it so, increasingly so, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's look at this chapter. If then you have been raised with Christ. If then you've been raised with Christ. Now, you're going to see two if-thens. We saw one if-then, remember last time. When Paul said, if then you have died with Christ. Now, when Paul says if... This is a word that can be defined or translated if or since. And I think it has connotations of both. Those who hold to a theology that no matter what we do, and no matter how we live, now that we've been saved, there is no way that we can have that salvation undone. Those who hold to that, no matter what kind of a thing we have in life, want to translate this since. It's since. Well... You can't say that because the Greek doesn't bear that out. Those who hold, well, it, be careful because you're living in Christ and he certainly has saved you. But if that means this, that if you do something wrong and you fail to repent and you die a moment later, you're going back to hell. Well, it doesn't mean either one of these. Paul is a realist. He knows they're saved. He is talking to people since you have died in Christ in his death and since you have been raised with Christ in his resurrection. Therefore, live a certain way. But you see, his sense doesn't mean it's automatic and it doesn't matter how you live because there is always the issue of the perseverance of the saints, the walking out and the working out of true and genuine faith Faith that saves is faith that keeps us saved through our obedience. And so it is both. 
So we shouldn't take this as an automatic, since we're saved, therefore I can live any way I want to. And we've seen this on many, in many people's lives. Or if you're saved, therefore you have to walk on eggshells because if you do anything to crack the eggshell, God is going to get you. It's neither one of these. It's both together. Can we accept that? Can we see that? It's both together. So he says, since or if you have been raised with Christ, having already told them to embrace the death of Christ as their own. Remember in the last chapter, since or if you have died with Christ. He says, we embrace that. When did we embrace the death of Christ? When did we do that? By faith. For you have been saved by grace through faith. And when the death of Christ was revealed to us and revealed in us by the Holy Spirit who birthed us into the church, in that revealing of the death of Jesus for my sin on my behalf, so that I do not have to suffer the wages of sin, the death, the wrath of God, I embraced that. I did what? I said yes to that. Why? Because God revealing that to me revealed it within the context of giving it to me as he gave to me also and gave to us also the ability to embrace it by faith. Don't you see? He didn't say, look, I'm revealing the essence of the gospel to you. Please, please accept it. Please flow. Please do it. Please do it. Please, 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 please. No. As he reveals, he reveals the essence of the gospel in the power of that revelation and gives to us also the ability and the desire to receive that revelation. God is not doing this kind of a work to people, just throwing it out there and hoping to goodness that somebody receives Jesus. Those whom he saves, he reveals it and he saves. He does both work. So we received and embraced the death of Christ as our own. This is critical. You and I must see, notwithstanding any evidence to the contrary in the natural realm, in our own thoughts, in the issues of our life, in how I feel, in my reactions, I must continually say against all the evidence in the natural realm to the contrary, I was crucified with Christ. My old humanity, my old character, my old person as constituted in Adam has been in God's sight and according to God's plan and purpose. It is a death sentence, and I have been put to death in the realm of the old. Amen? If we don't see that, we cannot progress in the chapter 3 of, Rome, uh, of Colossians. We must see, no matter what is happening to the contrary, because the enemy's purpose is to convince us you're still alive, Tammy. You, you, that didn't work. That death is still there. Well, it is there in a temptational way, but it is no longer there in a binding or controlling way. Sin no longer can control me or bind me or force me. Can you say Amen. You see, this is the real issue right here. If we don't get this issue in us, we can't go any further. We will be continually tripped up by Satan. So if you're a believer, I don't care how you feel. I don't care what you're going through. I don't care what is happening. 
sins, dominion, and power, and control has been crucified in us. And when Jesus said, it is finished, among other things, what was he finishing? What was he finishing, Carmen? The control of sin, amen? Right? He was finishing that control. Julio, it's over. Here's the issue. Satan, flesh, the world, my mom and them, and even my wife cannot make me sin. Can you say amen? It cannot happen. It cannot happen. So the next time you're confronted with an issue of sinning, no matter what it is, no matter why it is, no matter where it's from, you and I will collapse every time into the arms of temptation unless we know and say, I will not sin because you cannot make me sin because I have died to sin's controlling power. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Now, why am I emphasizing it? I don't know whether I'll finish the, the uh, class today, but I really, quite frankly, don't care. This is the issue. The issue isn't, oh, God, help me when I'm tempted. He's done it all. Oh, God, what's going on? Well, what's going on is you're living in enemy territory, and the enemy's throwing stones and arrows at you and trying to kill you and getting you to walk in quicksand and all of that kind of stuff. What's going on is what's supposed to go on. We are lights in the world, amen? So believers, listen one more time. And you can get this by reading Romans 6, verses 1 through 12, or 1 through 14. Go all the way to 14. This is a good verse, too. And here's the reason. This is the basis for my sinning. Either I'm ignorant of the fact that what God has done in Christ and the death of Christ, and you ain't ignorant no more because you in here. So your ignorance is out the door. And you shouldn't have been ignorant anyway because being a believer, you should have read the Word and known it. And secondly, knowing that Satan cannot make me sin, then the real battle after that, because if you don't have that, you're gone. But after that battle is, you ready? Do I want to sin? And I do it because I want to. Not because the devil made me do it. Remember, what's his name? Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. Some of you may be old enough to remember Flip Wilson. And yet that's the theology of so many of the people of God. I have sat in meetings over and over again where when two people together, whether they're friends or husband and wife or whatever it is, and they're talking about the sin of the other person, and each one of them is getting glances back and forth as if that other person has anything to do with you sinning. It is impossible. May I repeat that, and you may write it down. It is impossible for anyone or anything to make you sin. Aren't you glad we take the, the hooks out of all this? You and I sin only because we want to sin. Come on in, duck man. We want to sin. Can you get it? So don't blame, oh God, I didn't want to do that. You lying thing. You lying thing. 
whoa, don't call believers a liar. Well, I mean, you know, James says in chapter 4, you adulteresses. I mean, you know, you people are living like this. Look, let's get into chapter 3, but having anchored ourselves first in chapter 2. And what is it, verse 20, 21, since you have died with Christ. Chapter 2, I should remember the verse. No, no, died with Christ. Chapter 2, what verse is it? 20, yeah, verse 20. Let's be anchored in 20 so we can go on to 20, chapter 3, verse 1. We're too quick to want to jump into the resurrection issues without knowing first the death issues. All righty? Some kind of way we're going to have to slow those clocks down, throw stones at them or something. Is there any question about this? I don't want to go on if there's a question about this. Is there any equivocation, any questioning, any wavering in your mind of anything at all that would say to you, yeah, but, yeah, but. If you hear a yeah, but, and you should hear that, that's the enemy of your soul whispering, do you really believe this stuff? That's what he told Eve in the garden, didn't he, John? Remember? Verse 2 of chapter 3, do you really believe this? God said, do you really believe this? It can't be this way. Your feelings, your experiences, so much is contrary. Uh, let's believe our experiences. Let's believe our feelings. Let's believe all of these things about us. No, God says, believe me. Amen? Believe me. So every time I sin, I am personally at fault and responsible and guilty. Now, thankfully, Jesus has paid the price for it, but I still am guilty of the sin, but I don't stand guilty in God's court, but I am guilty of the sin, but that guilt has been paid for at the cross even before I committed it. Amen? See, there's the glory of the gospel. So you see, having embraced Christ's life, I'm only on the second sentence of my notes. Having embraced Christ's death as their own, Paul now in chapter 3 tells them that they are now to embrace Christ's life. So you embrace Christ's death as to the forgiveness of sin, and we embrace Christ's life for the walking in righteousness. Romans 4.25 tells you something about that. We embrace the death of Christ for the forgiveness of sin and the breaking of its controlling power. And then we embrace the life of Christ. Remember chapter 2, the death, then he gets into chapter 3. By the way, there were no chapters in the original. You know, Paul's just writing it out. And so now I've told you about the death. Now let's talk about the life. First is death in order to have resurrection. The resurrection and ascension of Christ signals the beginning of the new creation. Remember in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, for what? If anybody be in Christ, he is a what? New creature. New meaning totally reconstituted and recreated spiritually in Christ because the old has been crucified in the death of Christ. When Jesus died, all of the old went into the ground with him, and it remained in the ground buried forever. So that when Jesus came forth, 
he came forth as the first of the new creation, the old remaining before the presence of God and in the mind and purposes of God forever buried, never to be brought back again. You're a new creation. Behold, old things are what? They've been done away with. All things have been made what? New. All things have been made what? New. Right? Old is gone. The new has come. When did that happen? In the resurrection. We began to experience it when we were born again. But that happened in the resurrection. And in fact, it was in the purpose of God before the foundation of the world. So it's always been the purpose of God. It always has been. This is nothing new to God. It was just new to us when we got saved. So the, Christ, the resurrection, ascension of Christ. You notice I always say, or well, most of the time, resurrection, ascension, and I often put in the exaltation because that is the package. That's the package. Jesus rose as the firstborn of the new humanity. He ascended into heaven where that new humanity, the new heaven and earth, will reside forever. And he was given all authority in heaven and earth to rule over the heavens and the earth as the Father's regent. And we will be with him in that ruling as Adam was to rule the earth as God's regent. You see, it, it kind of all goes back to where? In the beginning, in Genesis. Got to get back to Genesis. Until that time, until the return of Jesus, when Jesus returns, all of this will become totally consummated and a reality in our life. We'll get new bodies, new heaven and new earth. But until that time, the church is God's image in a falling world waiting for its freedom, waiting for its release. And until that time, then, we are walking evidence of the fact and the power and the effectiveness of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And every time we bite into the fruit of sin, every time we compromise with something of the world that we should not compromise with, we are saying something false about the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are marring, if you would, the image of our great creator God. And that's the essence of the evil and the wickedness of sin. It's not just something that I did something wrong, but in my sinning, whatever it is, to whatever extent it is, I am saying that this is how God is in himself. I'm saying that God is a lustful person. God is jealous in the wrong way. God is stingy. God is whatever. That's the evil of our sin. You see, because we are now those who are in Christ. The world can't say that. It's not in Christ. It doesn't image God, neither can it image God. We are the image bearers of the Father. Remember Genesis 1.26. And we are the only ones who can bring forth a blasphemy. Remember that, Romans 2.24? Because of you, the name of God has been blasphemed among the Gentiles. So we need to walk more carefully because of the stupendous significance of our walk and of our behavior. So he says this, since then or if then you've been raised with Christ, what? He says, seek the things that are above. Look up. Because they have been raised with Christ, the church is to actively seek the things that are above. You see, being raised with Christ is a theological and a positional reality. You know what I mean by that? It has happened. It's true. 
We just don't see all the reality of it because we're still in the flesh, bounded by this fallen world. It's real. When God says he's done it, what does that mean? Janet, what does it mean? It's done. Trish, what does it mean? It's reality. This is real. Germs are real even though you don't see them. They're real. And so since this is done, it then has to take practical effect. It is positionally done. Right, Frank? It's done. Right, brother? It's finished. The fait accompli. It's finished. No more to be done. But now it has to take on a practical element. A practical element. So how does that practical element happen? Paul says, since you died and now since you're raised with Christ, start looking where? Start looking where? Up. Start looking up. It won't take on practical activities until we begin to walk it out practically. Does that make sense to you? Too many Christians are waiting for God to do something. They're waiting for an osmosis kind of a thing. Well, I'm just going to be here and God's just going to. It's not going to happen. The practical reality will take effect. I'm sorry, the positional reality will take effect only as we begin to participate or obey or do that which is practically called for or commanded. And so what is the first command? Look up. He says this, seek the things that are above. In this phrase, Paul makes a distinction between two realms, the things that are above and the things that are below. He says above. What is above? It is the realm of God's dwelling. It is the realm of God's full presence, the heavenlies, as opposed to that which is below the realm of the God of this world. Remember the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 1 John 5, 19. Remember this. There is a God of this world. Where is his realm? His realm is where we live right now. This is the world in which we live, which is dominated and controlled by, in God's permission, his sovereign permission for a period of time, for Satan to have not full reign, but permissive reign. Amen? Not full whatever you want to do, but permissive whatever you want to do. So that as he attacks us, he attacks the church, that attack and those things that are happening to us are within the context of God's permission. For what purpose? Romans 8, 28. For we know that God is permissioning all of these things for our good, for those who love him according, called according to his purpose. Well, what's happening to me? Why is that happening? What's going on? Well, we, we need just to do a little better job and say, Father, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't even like it. But I am not going to be an idolater. I am going to trust you and love you. And even in total confusion, I'm going to walk in the faith that you've given me to do with the life that you've given me to do through the word that you've given to me. You see, Jesus employed the same terminology about himself. In 8.23 of John, he said to them, you are from below. He's talking to whom? Whom is he talking to? He's talking to the Pharisees and the priests and the Sadducees. He's talking to the high monk and monks of religion here. What do you mean I'm from below? Don't you see my robes? My, my robes and my whatever should show you I'm from above. I'm kind of above you. 
I'm the religious man. I'm the leader. He said, you're from below. I am from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. And then 9-11, Jesus answered, you would have no authority. Remember the, remember the pilot? Don't you know who I am? That's what Satan wants to do to us. That's what the world, don't you know who I am? Don't you know the result of not obeying me? People will laugh at what you're wearing if you don't wear those kinds of clothing. People will call you weird and extreme if you don't go to those places and do that stuff. Don't you know who I am? Jesus said, look, you don't have any, no authority over me unless it's been given to you by the Father. Beat it, Satan. We're not falling for that kind of stuff. This seeking the things that are above is also mentioned in Hebrews 8. I won't read the passage, but you remember, why is Abraham commendated in Hebrews? Because he was looking for a city which had foundations. Isn't that an interesting way of saying it? He was looking for a city which had foundations. What does that mean? A heavenly city. He was looking for his true, eternal, permanent lodging, not on this earth. His meaning of life and his substance and sustenance and, and, and whatever and satisfaction, not here, but where God is. He was looking for a city which has foundation, which says what? There is coming a day we, we, when we will live in a city which has foundations. And who is the foundation of this city? Who is the foundation of this city? Say it loud. Jesus is the foundation of the city. There is no other foundation. So because of that, Abraham is commendated. Why could he go through what he went through? And why could he have the faith? And why could he wait 25 years and his body no longer can produce kids and his wife is so old she can't even stand up and all that kind of stuff? Why? Because hope against hope. Remember in Romans? What chapter is it? Chapter, help me, 4, 4, chapter 4. Hope against hope. He believed God. And when his body, verse 18, was good as dead, he says, my body can be as dead as it wants to be, Satan. I can be as dead as you want to make me look. But God said it's going to happen, and it is going to happen. You see, we got to get an attitude. We have attitudes about everything else. But we need to develop attitudes about sin and about obedience to God. We need to have an attitude, Kenneth. A belligerence about us in these areas. Someone throwing rocks at your house and started to break your windows, you're going to be belligerent. You're going to run out there with your shotgun or whatever it is, or your, your pans and pots and pans, and, and you're going to try to stop this person, right? You're going to be belligerent because they touched your stuff. Well, sin and Satan in the world is trying to touch God's stuff in me. Let's be belligerent. I, I, I think there's a place of belligerence in Christ, don't you? Well, brother, you know, Go to another class if you want to hear that. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry about that. And that what's above? Why look above? What's the good deal about above, Claude? So what? 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 With the clouds in the sky? I get my son in my, the sun in my, I can't see. Where Christ is what? Seated at the right hand of the Father. Why seated? Hebrews tells you he has sat down. Why? Because the issue of the accomplishment and the purchase of our salvation and the destruction of the old uh, uh, humanity and the bringing forth of the new humanity has been completed. So in reference to God's 
eschatological cosmic work of redeeming his people back to himself, unto himself. That work is a completed work never to be done again. I'm going to say something that's going to touch some of you, but I'm not too care about that right now. There is no such thing as the continuing death of Jesus for our sins, calling it a sacrifice. And my personal opinion, may I give you my opinion in this? Is that all right to give you my opinion? This is not, I can't give you my opinion. My opinion in this is this, that if we go to places that participate and do this, I don't say don't go, Hmm, it's up to you. But to give credence to it and to participate and then whatever, in my mind, not in everybody's, they wouldn't all agree with me, is an acceptance and a tacit approval of it. The best you can do is just kind of sit there and not let it touch you in your activities. There's no way I'm going to make a mistake and bow before that idol for the sake of so-and-so's opinion over here. It ain't going to happen. Oh, I'll do it in other areas of my life that I want to, you see. I'm not that great. Christ is seated. This is a finished work. But what happens in Acts chapter 7? He's not seated. He's doing what? I see the Son of Man. Remember Acts seven fifty six Standing. You see, Jesus is seated in, seated in relation to the finished work of our salvation. But brothers and sisters, he is standing as the continuing work of our sanctification. He is the captain of the hosts of the Lord in Joshua chapter 5. He is the captain who stands there with all the armor on and the blazing sword. And he says, Joshua, effectively, before you start going into this and before you can get into Jericho, you're going to be wiped out. You better do it with me, in me, following me, and it better be me through you. You see? You see that? Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's a realm from which Christ rules. Remember that? Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Given to me. He is the ruling, reigning, and returning Son of Man. Christ is the reigning, ruling, I'm sorry, risen, ruling, or you could put reigning, returning Son of Man, who is sitting on the throne of God and who has been given all authority in heaven and earth. It's a completed work. He's on the throne. Where have we seen a man on the throne before? except in Isaiah 6. I'm going to take that away from you because that's too obvious. Where have you seen another picture of a man on the throne ruling the affairs of the world? Genesis. We have have back, yeah, Genesis. If you know Genesis from beginning to end, especially the first three chapters, but from beginning to end, the whole whole panoply of God's work is in Genesis. It starts in the garden and it ends in the throne. It starts in the garden and it ends in the throne. The Bible starts in the garden and in Revelation what? 22, it ends where? In the throne room. That's what Genesis does. It's a, it's a microcosm of the whole Bible. And so it's not a bunch of just fairy tales. So look at Genesis and just listen to this then. Genesis 41, 
before 41, what happened? This Pharaoh has a dream. Remember the family of God is in, Pharaoh, uh, is in Egypt. Remember that? I'm sorry, sorry. Uh, uh, come on, Davidson, get it right. Joseph is giving this dream to his brothers. You're going to bow down to me, and I'm you know, the sun and the moon. So they throw him out. They put him in the pit, and then the uh, Ishmaelites come along. They sell him, and they take him off to Egypt. So he's in Egypt. He's been in Egypt incarceration for 17 years. 17 years he's been there. I won't tell you all the whole story. You can see the movie. And so for 17 years, he's there. Then all of a sudden, one day, out of the blue, when is this jail term going to stop? When am I going to stop suffering? When, am I? when God is ready to use the suffering that he has been building into you, the character of his Holy Spirit, when he's finishing that, then you will be used. You'll use all through it, but then you will be used in a particular way, perhaps. The Pharaoh wakes up. Ah, I have a dream. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel? Remember that? Daniel? And so they're trying to figure it out. Well, we don't understand what it is. But, you know, there's this, oh, I forgot. Oh, uh, mm, he told me that I would be restored to cupbearer. Oh, man, it's been two years. What am I? There's a guy who was in prison who told me about my dream, and it came true. Why don't you ask him? He's a Hebrew. He's an Israelite. You know, he, his name is Joseph. So they get Joseph all cleaned up and whatever, you know, and smelly and all that. You know, you can't come before Pharaoh and be stinky and dirty. You have to wear your finery. Now, that says something to me about how we come to church. But that's another matter. And so he comes in, and he tells Pharaoh the meaning of the dream. Remember? The seven years of what? Plenty, the seven years of famine. And then Joseph says, I think Joseph is totally naive. He doesn't get it. He said, now, Pharaoh, what you're going to have to do, you're going to have to point somebody who knows how to do this. He wasn't trying to be self-serving. And Pharaoh says, where am I going to get somebody with greater wisdom? Wisdom, discerning. Remember Paul's prayer? Colossians 1 9, 19. Sorry, 1 9. I pray that you be filled with the knowledge of God's word and all what? Spiritual what? Wisdom. wisdom and knowledge. Spiritual what? Wisdom. Where did Joseph get this? He had it been, been given to him by God. And in 17 years of incarceration, this wisdom has been marinating in him. Romans 8, 28, don't you see? And as a result of that, listen to this. He gives Pharaoh this word, and here's what Pharaoh said. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Matthew 28, 18. Right, Michael? Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. My father is what? Greater than I. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. In those days, that was the world, remember. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring and from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. You see the Son of God, the Son of Man, returning into the heavens with the blood of the everlasting covenant, which you see in chapter 9 of Hebrews, and clothed him in the garments of fine linen and gold chain about his neck. Clothe him as the risen man with all the refinery and the 
issues of God Almighty himself as a man, in a man, in a man. And he made him ride on his second chariot, and they called out before him, bow the knee. Where do you see? And every knee shall bow. Where do you see that? Philippians what? Chapter 2. Wherefore also, verse 8, God has highly exalted him and has given him a name above every knee, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall, every name, above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow with things where? In the heavens, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. And when Joseph would ride through the land on his chariot, they would bow down and worship Joseph as the Redeemer of Egypt. And he made him ride, and thus he sent him over the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift a hand or a foot in all the land of Egypt. Oh, what a revelation of the coming kingdom of God. Amen? And they tell me that Genesis is a pile of stuff. Look at what you see here. This is just a tidbit of the many times that God does this. He says, set your minds. I, I think I can make it through. Paul is telling the church, keep your eye on the commander. Remember? Remember Stephen? Keep your eye on the commander. Remember Joshua 5? Keep your eye on the commander. Look above. Why? Because Christ is above. You see, friends in Christ, church, we must make decisions to look away from temptation issues of the world, and it is a struggle and a fight, and it is difficult. But we can do it in Christ because we have the power of God's Holy Spirit, and we must decide against everything to the contrary to look away to Christ, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, right? We must see him where he is seated if we're going to begin to deal effectively and overcome the issues of sin, no matter what the sin is, and begin to become matured in Christ. Stephen had faith to look beyond the moment. Do you have faith to look beyond the moment, the, the temptation, the feeling, the desire, the anger, the resentment, the guilt? Do we have faith to look beyond it? If you are saved, Valinda, you have the faith. The issue is not do you have the faith, will you do it? Against all that is to the contrary. Well, you don't understand. I've been told that so many times, I think I'm going to start throwing books at people. May I say it this way, quite frankly and literally, and you may not like it. I don't give a good mm. Speak the truth and believe the truth. We're too much inundated and deceived by the lie. Amen? Man, you can't get along with these hacking females because it's your fault to a large extent. Females, you can't get along with this knuckleheaded whatever bimbo. It's your fault to a large extent. We must begin to be the courageous, strong people of a commander, of a general, of a victorious God in Christ. We must have a different mindset beginning this year or any year. Amen? Amen. 
We must not allow anybody to think we're too extreme and we're too this and that. That cannot be allowed in our lives. It doesn't mean doing the gospel wrong. But what it does mean is we must be those who stand courageously, strongly, consistently, compassionately, faithfully, biblically. So God's image may be declared in us. Set your minds. What does that mean? Look, think about these things. I have to battle this regularly in me, and I find myself slipping sometimes, and I have to go ahead and wrestle against myself. Anybody with me on that? Your mind begins to go helter-skelter, all your affections, your feelings, you're all over the place. We have to rein these things in. You see, this is a command to decide to place our affection on Christ. The world presents us with many choices for our affections, but only in Christ do we experience God's affection for us, which is the source of all our affections. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Again, he reminds them. Remember why. Remember why you can look up. Remember why. You've died. You've died. Let us stop saying this is too hard. Can we put that away from our vocabulary? That's such an insult to God. Hebrews said, have you suffered to the what? Shedding of what? I mean, Gail, have you started bleeding because you're resisting sin so much? You don't look like you're bleeding at all. You may be a bleeding heart, but, you know, okay, whatever. It's a, that was a pun. That was supposed to be funny, Gordon, but whatever. It's supposed to be. Your life, thank you, boy, yeah. Your life, your, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him. Look, why? What's the great reward of all this? When Christ appears, we're going to be with him. So what does 1 John 3 say? See what love the Father has what? <gasps> Bestowed, poured, lavished upon us. And then what does he say? In verse 3, what does he say? What is, read verse 3 to me, John. I don't know what it says. Help me to know. Loud, John, loud. Even as he himself is pure. You see, the purification, the finishing product, all of it is for this. And everything biblically is underpinned. When you read apostolic teaching, you'll see the underpinning of what? Jesus is coming back. All of this is on that day, his final vindication and reward through his people's obedience. Amen? Amen. Is God something else? See you next week.